Section 45 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 2, Book 5, Chapter 2, Insects, Part 2, Straight-Winged Insects, or Earwigs, Cockroaches, Soothsayers, Stick Insects, Crickets, Grasshoppers, and Locusts, by W. F. Kirby. The insects of this order are less numerous in species than those of any other but the next, and are easily recognized. The forewings are usually of a leathery consistency, and the hindwings are folded beneath them like a fan in the more typical families, though in the earwigs and cockroaches a somewhat different arrangement prevails. In the earwigs, indeed, the wings are doubled back at the ends, and in the cockroaches the wing cases, or tegmena, as they are technically called, overlap. As a rule, these insects feed entirely on vegetable substances. The soothsayers form an exception, being carnivorous, though they are not parasitic like the inknumon flies, but feed on fresh food, and several species of earwigs, cockroaches, and crickets especially those which are semi-domesticated, are omnivorous, and will eat animal as well as vegetable food. These insects have an imperfect metamorphosis, that is, there is no inactive pupa state, but the young, on emerging from the egg, already possess a recognizable resemblance to their full-grown parents, and their metamorphosis consists of a series of molts, before the last of which rudimentary wings appear in those species which ultimately acquire these appendages. A considerable number of species never have wings, a circumstance which frequently renders it difficult to determine whether a specimen is fully developed. The antennae are usually long and the joints distinctly separated, but are very rarely feathered. At the other end of the body we often find two long jointed organs called circi. The jaws are always furnished with strong mandibles. Many grasshoppers and locusts have a curious arrangement on the shank of the front leg, consisting either of a round or an oval cavity on each side, closed by a membrane, or of two long parallel slits in front. These are considered to be organs of hearing. The largest known insects belong to this order, the proportion of large or moderate-sized species is considerable, and the smallest are probably considerably larger than the smallest members of any other group. They are not numerous in temperate climates. There are only about 50 British species, and most of the larger of these are either naturalized species or merely casual visitors from abroad. The earwigs form the first family. Some are wingless, but most have very short wing cases under which very large wings, forming the most beautiful feature of these otherwise unattractive insects, are doubled and folded into a very small compass. Some of the smaller species fly readily, but others, such as the common earwig, though furnished with ample wings, are rarely seen to use them. The most conspicuous organ of the earwigs is the curious forceps at the extremity of the body, the use of which does not seem to be well made out, though it has been suggested that it is used for folding and unfolding the wings. The forceps differs very much in size and shape in different species, it is always larger in the male than in the female, and often differently shaped. In the common earwig, the male forceps is flattened and contiguous at the base, and rounded and incurved at the extremity. 
There are two varieties, in one of which the forceps is twice as long as in the other, but intermediate gradations do not seem to be met with. In the female, the forceps is narrow, nearly straight, and approximating. The earwig is a nocturnal insect and hides itself during the day in large-headed flowers like dahlias, to which it is very destructive, or in any convenient dark and narrow crevice, especially among decaying vegetable matter. It derives its name from its occasionally entering the human ear, but it may be easily driven out by dropping in a little olive oil. In most books it is denied that earwigs enter the ear at all, but it is nevertheless an undoubted fact, and the fanciful derivation that has been suggested of earwing in the place of earwig cannot be entertained respecting an insect which seldom shows its wings at all. It should be noted that the female earwig is said to tend her young very much as a hen tends her chickens, an uncommon habit in insects. The common cockroach is too well known to need description. The individuals with half-developed wings are the perfect females, but there are other species in which the wings are fully developed in both sexes, others in which the male is winged and the female wingless, and others again in which both sexes are wingless. In warm countries and on shipboard, cockroaches are far more troublesome than in cold climes, and the large brown ones, with a mark on the back of the thorax resembling a crown, and very broad wing cases and wings are called drummers in the West Indies, from the loud noise they keep up during the night. Lady Burton has given an amusing account of her introduction to cockroaches abroad. After two days we were given a very pleasant suite of rooms, bedroom, dining, and drawing room, with wide windows overlooking the Tagus and a great part of Lisbon. These quarters were, however, not without drawbacks, for here occurred an incident which gave me a foretaste of the sort of thing I was to expect in Brazil. Our bedroom was a large, whitewashed place. There were three holes in the wall, one at the bedside bristling with horns, and these were cockroaches some three inches long. The drawing room was gorgeous with yellow satin, and the magnificent yellow curtains were sprinkled with these crawling things. The consequence was that I used to stand on a chair and scream. This annoyed Richard very much. A nice sort of traveler and companion you are going to make, he said. I suppose you think you look very pretty and interesting standing on that chair and howling at those innocent creatures. This hurt me so much that, without descending from the chair, I stopped screaming and made a meditation like St. Simon's Stylites on his pillar. And it was that if I was going to live in a country always in contact with these worse things, though I had a perfect horror of anything black and crawling, it would never do to go on like that. So I got down, fetched a basin of water and a slipper, and in two hours by the watch I had knocked ninety-seven of them into it. It cured me. From that day I had no more fear of vermin and reptiles, which is just as well in a country where nature is over-luxuriant. A little while after we changed our rooms we were succeeded by Lord and Lady Lytton, and to my infinite delight I heard the same screams coming from the same room a little while after. There, I said in triumph, you see, I am not the only woman who is not like cockroaches. The dimensions of the insects are not so much exaggerated, for I believe this story refers to the large reddish American cockroach, which is common in many English cities, although only in warehouses. It does not usually much exceed an inch in length, 
but the antennae are very long and the wing cases expand nearly three inches. The soothsayers or praying insects are not British, though one or two species are found in the south of Europe. They have long forelegs, the shanks of which are set up with a double row of long, curving, saber-like spines, and when at rest they hold them up as if in the attitude of prayer. But they are really on the lookout for prey, and the long spines are admirably adapted for wounding or grasping the insects which form their food. They also fight fiercely among themselves, and it is no uncommon occurrence for a female to tear to pieces and devour her mate either during or after their courtship. The soothsayers are often of a green color, so as to match the grass and leaves among which they live, and thus conceal them from their prey. The stick insects, or specter insects, have some resemblance to the soothsayers, but are exclusively vegetable feeders, and have long sprawling legs, or shorter ones, sometimes more or less lobate, but they never possess prehensile forelegs for seizing prey. The wing cases are generally quite small, but some species have beautiful large green or pink wings, folded fanwise and covered by the stout front border of the wing. Many species are wingless and have a gray or brown color, which renders them scarcely distinguishable from dry bits of stick, and among these is the largest living insect known, a gray stick-like species from Borneo, measuring nearly 13 inches from head to tail. Other species have curious ex excrescences on the legs and body, which make them look like bits of wood overgrown with moss or lichen, while others possess large flat lobes growing from the legs and body, which cause them to be almost indistinguishable from green leaves, and indeed these insects are frequently called walking leaves. With the crickets we commence the last three families of the group, which are distinguished from the others by their power of leaping. The hind legs are very long, with very thick thighs, and generally a double row of strong teeth or spines on the shanks. The feet are generally three-jointed, and there is usually a long ovipositor in the females. There are very few true crickets in England, but three of these are very conspicuous species. The first is the mole cricket, a large light brown insect nearly two inches long, with broad, short front legs rather like those of a mole which it uses in a similar way. Though common and destructive in fields and gardens, it is not often seen, but if water be thrown on the ground overnight and a board laid over it, one or two mole crickets are likely to be found underneath in the morning. The house cricket resembles this insect in color, but it is not much more than half an inch long, and there is nothing remarkable in the structure of its legs. It is almost the only noisy insect found in English houses and is very similar to the common cockroach in its habits, although free from the disagreeable smell which adds to the disgust the latter insect often inspires. The third species, the field cricket, is a smooth black insect, larger and stouter than the house cricket. It constructs burrows in grassy places, but is not now a very common species in England. In the last two species, and many others, there is a bare space on one of the wing cases of the male, crossed by ribs in a manner varying according to the species, which helps to produce the loud chirping for which these insects are remarkable. The long-horned grasshoppers, which form the next family, are distinguished by having four joints to their feet, a long ovipositor in the female, and very long slender antennae. 
The commonest species inhabiting England and one of the largest grasshoppers is the great green grasshopper, which is found leaping about among long grass and low bushes, especially in the south of England. It is about two inches in length. Among the foreign species of this rather extensive family, we may mention some green or reddish South American species with a large round spot on the hind wings, not unlike those seen in the peacock butterfly. The last family includes the short-horned grasshoppers, or true locusts, so very destructive in many countries, though the real migratory locusts are only casual visitors to England, the native British species being all small insects found among grass and doing but little damage. The commonest of the migratory locusts visiting Britain is the red-legged locust, which expands from two to four inches and has gray wing cases varied with brown, pale green hind wings and red hind shanks with white-black tipped spines. Another species, the Egyptian locust, more rarely met with, has brown forewings and gray hind wings crossed by a broad blackish band. Two photographs are given on page 693 of a specimen brought to England among vegetables in the spring of 1901. Many foreign locusts, large and small, have beautiful red or blue hind wings, and some of these are common on the continent. Though not in England, those found in Europe are comparatively small, measuring only one or two inches across the wing cases. But some of the great South American locusts measure as much as seven or eight inches in expanse. However, some of the smaller species, such as the Cyprian locust and the Rocky Mountain locust, which measure less than two inches across the wing cases, are much more destructive than the large species. A real invasion of locusts is a terrible calamity, for the insects fly like birds, but in vast flocks and devour every scrap of vegetation where they settle. Sometimes a flight, two or three miles broad, continues to fly steadily over the same spot for hours together. Sometimes flocks perish at sea and are cast upon the beach in heaps like sandhills, extending for a distance of 40 or 50 miles. Nor are the young locusts less destructive before they acquire wings, for they march across a district in such numbers as to extinguish fires, fill up trenches, and overcome all similar obstacles placed in their way by sheer force of numbers. And it is well said of a visitation of locusts, the land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind is a desolate wilderness. Nerve-winged or lace-winged insects, or dragonflies and their relatives. The nerve-winged insects owe their title to the peculiar character of their wings, the horny veins which form the framework of those organs being multiplied and subdivided to such an extent that they assume the appearance of exceedingly delicate networks. These insects fall naturally into two great groups, in one of which the chrysalis, or pupa, is active and continues to take food like the grub, while in the other it is passive and helpless, like that of a butterfly or a moth. Prominent among the members of the first division are the dragonflies, which owe their title partly to their extreme voracity and partly to the fact that they feed entirely upon living insects, which they pursue through the air. They are exceedingly swift of wing and may be seen hawking over ponds and streams on any fine day throughout the summer and early autumn. The earlier part of their lives is spent in the water in which the eggs are laid by the parent insect. The grubs are usually of a dull gray or brownish green color and are remarkable for a curious organ known as the mask, which partly covers the lower surface of the head. 
This apparatus consists of two joints which fold upon one another, but can be extended at will, the one farthest from the head terminating in a pair of large and powerful jaws. When the grub perceives an insect victim, it swims cautiously beneath and seizes it by means of these jaws. The mask is then folded, and the prisoner drawn down within reach of the mandibles, by means of which it is speedily devoured. The method of swimming practiced by the dragonfly grub is also very curious. Through the center of the body runs a longitudinal tube, terminating in a circular orifice, closed by means of five tightly fitting valves. These valves, which together form a sharp spike when closed, can be separated at will. When the insect wishes to swim, it fills the tube with water and then squirts the contents forcibly out, the result being that it is driven swiftly forwards by the reaction. The pupa of the dragonfly is very much like the grub, with the exception that the rudiments of the future wings may be seen on the back. About 40 species of these insects are found in the British Islands, of which the great dragonfly is a well-known example. The body is three inches in length, while the extended wings measure about four inches from tip to tip. In color, it is light rusty brown with a few pale markings. The horse stinger, which is perfectly harmless, notwithstanding its popular title, is also common and may be recognized at once by its flat, dull yellow body which becomes blue in the fully developed male. In the graceful and beautiful demoiselle, the male is deep blue, with black patches on the wings, while the female is entirely green. Allied to these insects is the common mayfly, popularly supposed to live for one day only. As a matter of fact, however, it spends a couple of years in the grub and pupa states, inhabiting burrows in the banks of ponds and streams. These burrows are curved and have two entrances, one above the other, so that the insect can pass in and out with perfect ease. The mayfly is also remarkable for the fact that the perfect insect changes its skin shortly after reaching maturity. Before this change takes place, the female insect is the green drake of the angler, afterwards the gray drake. To this group belong also the termites, or white ants, so exceedingly numerous in almost all the warmer parts of the world. These are social insects, living together in vast colonies and making most wonderful nests, which consist of a vast and complicated series of chambers and passages, sheltered beneath a turreted dome of clay. In the center is the royal cell, inhabited by the king and queen, as the perfect male and female are called. These are winged when they first leave the pupil's shell, but after taking a single flight, they snap off their wings at the base, just as ants do, while for the rest of their lives they are absolute prisoners in the cell built around them by the workers. Shortly after this strange incarceration takes place, the body of the queen swells to a huge size so that, to quote Professor Drummond, she becomes a large, loathsome, cylindrical package, two or three inches long, in shape like a sausage and as white as a bolster. She now begins to deposit eggs at the rate of several thousands in a day, which are at once carried off by the workers, to whom is entrusted the entire care of the helpless young. These workers, which are exceedingly numerous, also enlarge the nest from time to time and construct tunnels of clay up the trunks and along the branches of trees, though which they may convey to the nurseries in security the gums and decaying wood for the nutriment of the young. A fourth form of insect is also found in the termite's nest, known as the soldier. 
The head is much larger and the jaws are much longer and stronger than those of the worker, and the sole function appears to be to defend the nest when attacked. Both soldier and worker, apparently, proceed from the same eggs which produce the king and queen, the difference in development being probably due, as in the hive bee, to the character of the food with which the young are supplied. In a state of nature, termites are undoubtedly beneficial. They are scavengers, in fact, whose duty it is to remove the dead and decaying wood which would otherwise encumber the ground for many years. But in civilized districts, they are extremely mischievous, books, furniture, and all the woodwork of houses being often completely destroyed by them before their presence is even suspected. The second division of the order also forms two well-marked groups, namely the flat-winged insects, in which the wings are fully spread, horizontally or obliquely, even in repose, and the hairy-winged insects, in which those organs can be folded longitudinally, like the joints of a fan. Of the former group, the ant-lion of southern Europe is a familiar example. The perfect insect is seldom seen, owing to its nocturnal habits. In appearance, it is not unlike a small and delicately built dragonfly with a yellowish head, a black body, and transparent wings marbled with brownish spots. The larva, however, is terrestrial and lives in a funnel-shaped pitfall which it scoops out in the sand, always working backwards in a spiral direction and jerking out the sand with its broad head in an almost continuous shower. Having completed the excavation, it buries itself at the bottom with merely the tips of its jaws appearing above the surface, and there waits for ants or other small creatures to fall down the sloping sides, accelerating their descent, if need be, by flinging sand upon them. The size of the pit varies with that of the insect, the fully grown grub digging down to the depth of about two inches, while the cavity is about three inches in diameter. The mouth of the ant-lion grub is very curiously constructed, the jaws lying in a groove on the inner margin of the mandibles, or jaws proper, so that while an insect is held prisoner by the latter, the former can be employed in sucking its juices. When the body of the victim has been completely drained, the empty skin is thrown out of the pit by a jerk of the head. The chrysalis, too, is remarkable for possessing jaws by means of which it cuts its way out of the cocoon which it made when a larva by spinning grains of sand together with silken threads. In some South European and African insects allied to the antlions, the hind wings are modified into extremely long and slender shafts, slightly expanded at the extremities. In an Indian species belonging to a related genus, these wings are scarcely more than threads, and bear a superficial resemblance to the attenuated limbs of certain gnats. One group, of which a Japanese species is a well-known representative, is characterized by the long, slender, clubbed antennae. The mantis flies are remarkable for the structure of the forelimbs, which are almost exactly similar in character to those of the praying mantis. The upper segment of the leg is so lengthened as to look like an additional joint. The lower surface of the thigh is armed with a number of long, sharp spines, and the tibia, or lower part of the leg folds closely down upon it after the manner of the blade of a clasp knife. These limbs are used for seizing, an insect which is once grasped being effectually prevented by the spines from breaking away. 
The larvae of these insects are parasitic in the nests of tree wasps and spiders and have the peculiarity of practically losing their limbs as they approach maturity, so that while at first they are free and active, they afterwards become almost as helpless as those of many beetles. One species is found in southern Europe, the remainder being wildly distributed over the hotter regions of the globe. Allied to the mantis flies are the curious snake flies, or camel flies. In these insects, the head is very large and is attached to the thorax, or central division of the body, by a long and distinct neck, which allows it great freedom of motion. The neck is usually raised and the head bent down, giving to the insect a remarkably snake-like appearance. These flies are predaceous in their habits, and the four British species may be found on the banks of ponds and small streams, where they can obtain insect victims in plenty. The larvae live beneath the bark of trees and wriggle about in a singularly serpentine fashion. Equally curious in a different way are the scorpion flies, in which the body is prolonged into a slender three-jointed process, the extremity of which, in the male, is furnished with a pair of curved forceps. In spite of their somewhat formidable appearance, these insects are perfectly harmless. They are very plentiful almost everywhere and may be found in numbers on any sunny summer morning, resting on the herbage on hedge banks or running actively about on the leaves of low bushes. Like the snake flies, they are predaceous, feeding entirely upon other insects and often attacking those which are bigger and apparently stronger than themselves. The eggs are laid underground, and the grubs, which are entirely subterranean in their habits, feed upon decomposing vegetable matter. When fully fed, they burrow still deeper into the ground, and there change into pupae, from which the perfect insects emerge about a fortnight later. In the common English species, the body is shining black, and the legs are yellow, while the transparent wings are marked with brown spots, which generally form three broken transverse bands. The insect is about half an inch in length. Certain allied insects have very slender bodies and long legs and might easily be mistaken for daddy long legs by anyone who failed to notice the presence of two pairs of wings. A species found in southern Europe is reddish-yellow in color, with a brown thorax and yellowish wings. It has a curious habit of suspending itself from a twig by its forelegs and seizing any flying insect which may come within reach with the middle and hinder pairs. Allied to the foregoing is the extraordinary little snow insect, which makes its appearance in midwinter and may be even found crawling on the surface of snow. In general appearance, it is not unlike a larval grasshopper, very long, slender legs, and antennae of about the same length as the body. There is also a well-developed beak. The wings are quite rudimentary in the female, while even in the male they are so short as to be perfectly useless for flight. The insect is remarkably active, nevertheless, and possesses the power of leaping, although the hinder thighs are not developed in any great degree. In color, it is metallic green, with the beak, antennae, legs, wings, and ovipositor rusty red. It is not uncommon in the north of England and Scotland. Far more generally distributed is the lacewing fly, or golden eye, which may be seen almost anywhere on warm summer evenings flitting slowly to and fro in the twilight. During the daytime, it may often be found resting upon fences or sitting on the leaves of low plants. 
and color it as pale green with a peculiar milky appearance, and the eyes glow as though lighted by an inward fire. The wings are so closely and elaborately veined that they look like a piece of the most delicate lacework. It is not advisable to handle the insect for although perfectly harmless. It possesses the power of pouring out from its body a liquid of the most horrible odor, which clings to the fingers in spite of repeated ablutions. The life history of the lacewing fly is very curious. When the maternal insect lays her eggs, she first deposits a drop of a highly glutinous fluid upon a leaf or slender twig, and then with an upward jerk of her long body draws it out into a slender thread. On contact with the air, this thread immediately hardens, and just as she releases her hold, a fly attaches a single egg to the tip. In this way, 200 or 300 eggs are laid together in a little cluster, which looks just like a tiny patch of moss. In the earlier botanical manuals, indeed, it was actually named, figured, and described as a moss. The grubs which hatch out from these eggs feed upon plant lice, of which they devour vast numbers, draining the juices by means of their hollow jaws, and then fastening the empty skins on their own backs as an American Indian might decorate himself with the scalps of his victims. Owing to this singular habit, the grub becomes perfectly unrecognizable after the first few days of his life, only the jaws and feet being visible beneath a pile of dry skins. When fully fed, it changes to the pupal condition in a silken cocoon, which it attaches to a leaf, and the perfect insect makes its appearance in the course of a few days. The outer flies, in general appearance, are not unlike caddis flies, but may be easily distinguished by the fact that the wings are not longitudinally folded while at rest. They are very abundant in the neighborhood of ponds and small streams, where they may be seen flying slowly and heavily, or resting on low herbage or the foliage of trees and bushes. The female insect leaves her eggs in clusters of 300 or 400 on the leaves of water plants, and the little grubs make their way down into the water immediately on hatching out, where they creep about on the mud at the bottom in search of the tiny creatures on which they feed. When full-grown, they are about an inch in length. Then they leave the water and bury themselves in the earth, where they change to pupae, the perfect insects emerging in June or July. The caddis flies, of which there are many British representatives, belong to the hairy-winged group. The larvae of these insects are entirely aquatic and remind one of hermit crabs, the front part of the body being clothed with horny armor, while the hinder part is entirely unprotected. In order to escape the attacks of predaceous insects, these grubs construct cases round their bodies, which they drag about wherever they go. In one or two instances, however, the case is attached to the lower surface of a stone. The materials of which these cases are made vary in accordance with the species. In one group, for instance, they consist of pieces of twigs and leaves cut into short lengths and arranged side by side in such a manner as to form a spiral band. The larva of another kind uses entire leaves, gluing them firmly together and living between them. A third species employs grains of sand and tiny stones, which it arranges in the form of a cow's horn. Most curious of all, however, is the case of a caddis fly, which is made entirely of the shells of water snails. 
As these shells are, as a rule, still tenanted by their owners, the snails may sometimes be seen attempting to crawl simultaneously in half a dozen different directions, while the grub is dragging them in a seventh. All the grubs retain tight hold of their cases by means of a pincer-like organ at the end of the body. When fully fed, they close the aperture at each end of the tube and assume the chrysalis stage, the perfect insects emerging a few weeks later. Although the wings are large and broad, they fly very slowly and never seem to take more than a short journey through the air. They may often be seen in numbers resting upon the herbage on the banks of streams and ponds, or crawling down into the water in order to deposit their eggs. The End of Section 45 by Dave Courier